You guys, I said holy smokes five times in this episode. Who in the heck says holy smokes? But it is so good. I talked with Dr. Gregory Bataro from Catholic Psych Institute about uh, anxiety, coping with stress, what it means to be present to the moment, and the fact that we as humans are mind, body, and soul, none of which can be separated. It's an awesome conversation. I know you're going to love it. You might want a pen and paper to take notes. Just saying. You're listening to Lead Them to Life, where it's our prerogative to explore what it means to be authentically human and fully alive. We have far more questions than answers, but believe that extraordinary answers can be found in the ordinariness of a journey. I'm your host, Emily Leadham. Hello, friends, and welcome to Lead Them to Life. I am so honored to be sitting across the country from Dr. Greg Bataro. Dr. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. This is a huge honor. I first kind of stumbled upon your work. Um, we we share an alma mater and in Divine Mercy University, and uh, I'm a couple years behind you, I think, but uh, just finished going through the program, and much of your work was actually referenced throughout the program, and yeah, just kind of looking for uh, psychological resources. You are all over the place, and I'm just so honored that you uh took some time to sit down with me. First of all, tell us a little bit about who you are. Where do you reside in the world? Who's your family? Tell us, give us a little brief introduction. Sure. So uh, I live in Connecticut. I'm right outside of New York City. And um, I've been married since 2012. I started my practice and got married the same year. And, um, you know, we've and, grown serve, and lived to tell the tale. Yeah, exactly. It's been, it's been amazing. Um, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey, and, and I love doing stuff like this. I like I love giving back any way I can because God has just been so so incredibly generous and in, in blessing me with so many things. But um, I, my story is kind of twisty and, and curvy all over the place. I, I spent four years discerning religious life. I was actually a Franciscan friar of the renewal, uh, so I was four years with the friars. Had the shaved head and long beard and and habit and everything is with uh, Father Benedict Rochelle. Wow. Was a, uh, he's a psychologist, Franciscan priest. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but he was the founder of the CFRs. And um, yeah, I spent four years with him and, and he gave me a, like a solid foundation and really understanding how to integrate human uh, psychology with our, our Catholic spirituality and our faith. So um, I saw lived out in him and then the ways that he approached handling situations, dealing with people, helping people heal. Um, uh, as, as, a, as a, just a, a tremendous importance in, in, in seeing the whole person and not disintegrating our faith from our humanity. And that's really what gave me my trajectory. I discerned that I was called to marriage. Um, during that time, I healed a lot of my own sort of baggage from the past. And I, I, my parents got divorced when I was younger. And I, you know, I had a conversion and I thought I was on the right track doing what I could for God. But really, there's a lot of things in the unconscious that needed to be healed. So thank God I was in the right place for it. And, and he did heal a lot of those wounds. So I discovered that I actually was called to, to vocation of marriage. I left the friars. Um, I was in temporary vows still. So all in the, you know, good graces and, and very close with the community still. And um, went to uh, IPS, Institute of Psychological Sciences, now known as Divine Mercy. And then, um, yeah, I got my doctorate there in five years. And, and in 2012, I graduated that year. I had also met my wife. And um, so the school's down in DC. 
uh, I wanted to return to New York where the friars were. And uh, I already had so many good connections with the church. I was like, might as well, if I'm going to open up a practice and work for the church, might as well go where I already know people. And so uh, moved to New York a little bit ahead of my wife. Um, then we got married and she moved up and joined me and started building a practice. Now, seven years later, seven and a half years later, we've got five kids under seven. We've got, uh, we've got 12 employees uh, and 12 therapists in five different offices. And we do online therapy. We're seeing people around the world. And uh, like I said, just tremendous blessing and, and so much abundance from God. And so now it's just all about how do we do more, help more people, have greater impact, and deliver this message of integration to people who are really suffering. Amazing. And you, and, and it's incredible. I think the growth is a testimony to the fact that there is a need. Um, there's been a need for your services. There's been a need for this integrated vision of the human person, um, that, that you are really educating people on. And, and I, maybe that would be a good place to start. Can you talk a little bit about, um, just kind of your view of the human person, um, through, through that Catholic lens, what has that meant to you and how has it, um, changed the way that you approach psychology? Uh, and yeah, healing. absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I think that a jump off point is a line from the theology of the body from John Paul too. He says, the body and the body alone makes visible the invisible. So like that is the integration and the union of the human person in a nutshell. And if we really think about that, it's like everything that we see, everything that's visible that we see in the body is a physical manifestation of everything that's human about the person that's spiritual. We, we separate those two things as if we have this one part of us that's spiritual over here, and then we have that physical part of us over there, which is, you know, the body. But they're, they're two different planes. They're two different dimensions of reality. You can't separate them because they're not even on the same plane. And then that way we can see they overlap each other. And then in JP2's words, the body makes visible the invisible. So it's the human person. It's one thing. And there's the invisible dimension of the human person. And then there's the visible dimension of the human person. But you can't separate those two things. So everything we see is true about the person. And this is, this is true for everything. So like if, if, when it comes to, say, gender, you know, and we understand that there's male and female, he created them. And that's a, not just a biological reality. It is a personal reality. It is a spiritual reality. People don't think about this, but our spirit, the thing that's going to live on for eternity, re-enfleshed through the resurrection of the body, is, is always going to be male or female. And so we can see that. We know the body is male. We know that the person is male or female. So therefore, we would know if the spirit is male or female. There's no physical dimension of the person that's not expressing some spiritual dimension of the person. And so we, we can't separate these qualities of the human person. So this is where psychology comes into play because psychology is a really interesting study that overlaps both the material and the spiritual, the bodily and the spiritual. And this is what I love about it so much because it it's this weird human reality. It overlaps both and the human person alone, besides for Jesus Christ, besides for God, overlaps the spiritual and the material. And that's what we're made in his image. So we have both just the way that God has both. But in, in that sense, 
there's psychology is a is a singularly human reality because it has the spiritual dimension so like we're moved by eternal truth objective truth the good the true and the beautiful these transcendental qualities that are beyond the material world and yet what is being moved is in the material world so we're being moved through our body as it, it interfaces with our brains our emotional life through our endocrine system our hormones and and the ways that we think cognitively intellectual development all of those brain functions overlap with our spiritual functions and this gives rise to what we call our psychology and so through that lens we can understand we can understand what the human person is made for and then how close or far away from that uh, for that from that trajectory we are on at any given point in time so disorder is when we are not lining up with what we're made for and then we can judge that we can actually diagnose that because we have the model of what the human person is supposed to look like and in fact we have the model of the perfect human person who gives an example to all of us christ himself reveals man to himself christ himself is the model of humanity so we can measure up every single other human person to the human person of christ and that's our that's our standard for diagnosis and that gives us a paradigm with which to understand human suffering or human excellence whether you're you're further or closer towards uh towards human excellence Mm-hmm. But we have to understand that that first that integration between the spiritual and the material for any of that to make sense. Mm-hmm. And we, otherwise, we fall into these fallacies, the materialistic fallacy of it's body alone that's real and the spirit is just kind of made up, or the spiritual fallacy, which many Catholics fall into, which is the spiritual life is the only thing that really matters, and everything that happens in this body is really just secondary. It's going to fall away. We're going to shed these nasty bodies and be free of them when we die and float off into heaven as spirits because that's what we really are. Those are two heresies, two fallacies. Both of them deny the incarnation itself. They're a denial of Christ. So by studying psychology, we're actually reinforcing our belief in the gospel and Christ himself. Yes. Holy smokes. Okay. That's like an entire episode in itself, I feel like. Um, So one of the things that I'm hearing you say is that if we're only looking through the spiritual lens, or if we're only looking through the psychological lens, that we're missing something. And I'm, I'm really curious because I think that this is something that a lot of us are trying to navigate is where is the place for, okay, I just need to pray more so that I can figure this thing out, whether that's anxiety or a wound, a memory, whatever, versus um, I need to do some like real mind work in order to reheal or in order to heal the pathways of how I process that kind of thing. How do you navigate what's what needs a spiritual solution and what needs a psychological solution? Or do things need both always? Yeah, I say that things always need both. And, and even, even creating that dichotomy is a false dichotomy. And in every question and every problem, we have to ask, what's the spiritual solution and what's the biological, psychological solution here? And, and really, the psychological being the thing that overlaps both. So you could even just say, what's the psychological solution here? Because we're never not 
psychologically operating in our lives. So in our prayer life, in our devotion, in our contemplation, in every aspect of our experience, we are being human in that experience. And so our human psychology is present. Now, there are times for people that are more mature in the faith and have more spiritually advanced in prayer, especially where our awareness of some of our human dimension sort of falls to the background. So, but, but it's never not there. You know, sometimes people talk about prayer and they're like, well, when do you leave behind Christ? You know, and you go off into these like stages of contemplation and union with the father and all these things. It's like, you're never not with Christ. It's never not through union with Christ. It's always, and that's the dimension of our humanity. So we only get to God through Christ because he's the bridge. We enter through our humanity. He takes us through his divinity to the Father. That's always going to be operating. So we always start with our humanity, every single problem. It's not just a matter of just pray more. That's never the answer. There's always going to be some human dimension of why are you not praying more in the first place? What anxieties are there? What distractions are there? What misunderstandings are there of prayer? The word itself, understanding, it's speaking to the human intellect. Like there's always going to be this dimension that we have to bring psychology into the, into the answer. Yes. So one of the things that I really, you just, you just led perfectly into one of the main things that I want to ask you about. Um, we are in the middle of a very chaotic, unprecedented world experience, right? With, with people, um, in quarantine with people uh, getting sick with a lot of fear. And I think it's, there's a reality that it's raising, um, some real anxiety for people and, in, in, in certain um, arenas, I guess I would say, I think that there has been this uh, message being promulgated, we just need to pray more. We need to hope more, et cetera. And I think it's said in great, in great faith and in great, um, you know, in good heartedness and that kind of thing. Um, but I want to just talk a little bit about maybe anxiety and fear uh, that the human person, that many human people are currently experiencing and some practical guidance that you might offer in addition to praying more certainly, or addition to, um, kind of without that message being promulgated, but how would you respond to that? What do you think is needed? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is a, this is a helpful place to also understand why we talk about the body and spirit separately, because they are two facets, two different facets of the same person. And our biology does come from the world from the material world and it's part of God's creation, but it's also related to the animal kingdom. So we have these like animal biology facets of our personhood. And the reason why I lay that out as a foundation is because we have what's called the, well, we all know it as a survival instinct. We have this fight or flight response, this sympathetic nervous response, which is part of this material body. And we share that with all the other animals. We have this like, this fight or flight response, which is made by God to help us save our lives and protect our lives from threats of actual death. Okay. So that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. However, it's built on the materialistic narrative that death is the end of the story. 
So the big picture here is then we have the spiritual dimension of the human person, which which enters in through the example of Christ, who tells us death is not the end of the story. So even though everything in your brain, your body, the whole animal world is ordered towards believing that death is the end of the story, I've come to bring good news. I've come to explain this to you, to share with you this reality. There's another kingdom. It's not of this world. It's beyond this world. And you know what else? I'm going to just do it and show you what it looks like. Okay, watch. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back to life. I'll be right back. Yeah, exactly. I'll be right back. And he's like, see, that's what I was trying to tell you. This is the good news. So we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. That's the core human fear. It's also the core animal fear. It's the core everything fear. Everything in this world is ordered towards avoiding death. So that's our number one core fear. And we have to overcome that by our faith. It's only by faith that we can overcome that. Otherwise, like we would have no reason to overcome fear. And there, there's another way to look at it. It's, it's when we get into, I'm sure we'll talk about mindfulness. And there's this distinction. We could jump ahead here to like mindfulness is basically learning how to overcome that fear response in the brain. And when I bring up mindfulness, some people ask this question, like, well, I've heard of mindfulness before. Isn't that a Buddhist thing? Isn't that like a new agey Buddhist thing or, or Buddhist thing? And, and um, so that's a good point because there is another justification for why you'd want to override your fear response. And the Buddhist justification is this whole world is an illusion. So if this world is an illusion, if yourself is an illusion, if God is an illusion, if danger is an illusion, if all these things are not real, then that's another reason why you might want to override your fear response and, and live with more peace and less fear. Now, obviously, that's not our worldview, and we completely disagree with that reality. So obviously, we know ourself is a real thing. We're an individual being. We're in a relationship with God. He's real. This world is real. He created it in his image. So why would we ignore our survival instinct? Why would we want to circumvent it or overcome it? Because we believe that father who appeared to us in his son, Jesus, who gave us the good news that he overcame death. So all of this to say, we have a spiritual justification by faith that we don't have to be afraid of death. And if that's the case, we can learn how to override our brain's system, which is built on the reality that death is the end of the story, so avoid it at all costs. Okay, and that's that's what mindfulness is. Yes, I was just gonna say, you're blowing my mind. Let's go go down the mindfulness track because that's the practical, what I'm hearing you say is, is we need practical practices that help us to rewire this brain system that's wanting to take flight, Uh, right? Yes. And so is, would you say that in some ways mindfulness or some of these other practices that we're gonna get in, in in terms of combating anxiety, are they our fight mechanisms? in some ways. And, and I mean that in the, in the sense of like, they reroute us in reality and say, I'm going to stand firm in peace and, and I'm going to combat the anxieties that are kind of coming at me. Um, 
yeah, let's, let's, what does that look like? How do we, if somebody's listening, like, okay, Dr. Greg, that sounds great. I want to do that. I want to be at peace. I want to recognize that this isn't the end of the story. Uh, but how, but I still feel my heart racing or I still feel short of breath or I still feel like I wake up in the middle of the night and sweats or, you know, uh, sweats. Um, so give us some practicals. How do we do this? Yeah, exactly. And this is precisely the problem. I think that's, that's rampant in our church, uh, and has been for a while because of this disintegration. It's like, okay, isn't it enough that we just told you the truth? Like, I'm just going to preach at you. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, do not be anxious about the things of your world. Isn't that enough? Stop being anxious now. Just listen to Jesus. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute. We no, that's not enough because we're not just spiritual beings who only understand things through the intellect, through these ideas, and then we change everything because of an idea. We have psychology, we have a biology, we have a system in place, we have patterns of neurological associations that have been already imprinted and developed over years. So then the question is, okay, so what do we do? What's the practical exercise? And that's exactly what mindfulness is. All that mindfulness is, is connecting you to reality. It's, it's connecting you to reality. So if you think about it, when you're anxious, when you're ruminating, or when you're depressed and you're ruminating, or you're frustrated, you're ruminating. When you're fuming and angry at somebody, you're ruminating. What does that mean? Your, your thoughts are spinning, 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 spinning with their own agenda. You're not intentionally choosing how and what to think. Your, your mind has an, a mind of its own and it's going to go off in a direction and you're along for the ride and you're just pay, you're just listening to whatever your mind has to tell you through those ruminations. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't believe he did that. He's so wrong. He totally did it. Or nobody's ever going to like me. Nobody's ever, I'm never going to get out of this. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Or we're in danger. I'm going to lose my loved ones. My kids are going to get sick. My parents are going to get sick. Those ruminations. And we're just there for the ride. We're not actually intentionally in control of what our mind is doing at that moment. And the point is that that's not real in this present moment. It's really happening in our imagination, but that's different from something that's really happening outside of our imagination. And whatever data we present to our brain is going to affect our brain. Our brain is going to react to whatever we present to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And our brain is very simple. It doesn't discern. It doesn't judge. It doesn't decide. It doesn't make categories. It's very, it's the part of the brain that's very reactionary and it just simply takes whatever you give it and it's going to just immediately react. It computes. And it just computes based on the, the data that's, that's inputted. So if you, if you present something uh, uh, that, that is non-life-threatening to your brain, your brain will not trigger its life-threatening fight-or-flight response. If you present something that is a problem to your brain, your brain is going to respond and go into problem solving mode, which is the flight or fight response. So the reason why this technique of mindfulness is so powerful is because in the present moment, through our five senses, and this is where most of the mindfulness at least starts, practice starts, 
pay attention to what's coming through your five senses. Because most of the time, unless you're in an actual life-threatening situation, so like if your house catches on fire and you're sitting in your burning house and you're like listening to the crackling of flames (laughs) and you're feeling the heat of the heat come down on you and you're seeing flames around you, like that's going to trigger your fight or flight response. But let's just say 99.99% of the time, you're not in a life-threatening situation in reality and you pay attention to your five senses which are communicating reality to your brain, your brain is going to just think, oh, we're safe. So this is all mindfulness is. Take a breath and pay attention to it. Sitting in your chair, pay attention to the sensation under your body of your chair. Folding your hands together, pay attention to the sensation of your hands touching each other. Simply go for a walk, listening to the sounds around you. There's no magic to this. This is a very simple, basic physiological response that's happening in the brain because the data that you're focusing on, the walk, the sounds, the sights, the tastes, the smells, what your body feels in that moment, that's the data that your brain is focusing on. So that's the data the brain is going to respond to. Mm -hmm. And as long as those data inputs are not life-threatening, your brain is going to turn off that fight or flight response. Now, if you... If you present data from our sixth sense, the sixth sense is our imagination. If we present data from the sixth sense to the brain and we happen to be in a problem in our sixth sense, then the brain is going to go into problem-solving mode. I've never heard that before. So give me an example. Okay, can we do do this with uh, the current pandemic? So walk right. us through, because I'm thinking, okay, what if somebody's listening and says, but Dr. Greg, have you read the news? Have you looked at, have you watched the news recently? You know, right. there's, okay, there's this real problem happening in the world and yet it's not in my home. So are you saying, is, is that, does that make sense? I think that's the question that I have is when something is not immediately affecting me, bodily right now, it's not affecting me. I'm breathing healthy air in my home. I'm working. I'm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I'm safe. I'm healthy, that kind of thing. So is the current, as an example, is the current pandemic something outside of myself and I need to pay attention to simply in order to kind of calm anxieties that might be coming up for us? Right. Is it paying attention to what's currently happening right now? Yeah. So, so there's a lot to this. I mean, by the way, let me just mention, I teach an eight week course about this. So we're doing this in 30 minutes. It's a lot to sum up in 30 minutes. I'm just (laughs) kind of giving the basics. If anybody's interested in learning more, you could go to catholicpsych.com slash store. And I have a number of courses in particular, the two that relate to what we're talking about. One is called the introduction to Catholic mindfulness. And then I also developed that. I, I transformed that into what I call a virtual retreat. So it's eight weeks of daily short videos that open all of this up and all of these objections and questions and points of clarification, everything like really over eight weeks, this is like the stuff comes up like this, but this, this is the point. Do we have real problems to solve? Yes. But one thing I cover in the course is the difference between our brain in, in, in problem solving mode the fight or flight response versus the brain not in the fight or flight response. And here's the thing. When you're running from a real life threat, 
If your house is on fire, you don't have to think clearly. You don't have to think creatively. You don't have to think with broad-minded perspective. You don't have to have empathy. You don't have to have self-compassion. You don't have to have anything because you're entire, except for save your butt. Yeah, get out of the house. Get out of the house. When we trigger that aspect of our mentality, our brain goes into that mode of fight or flight. It's got one goal and it moves all resources towards attaining this one goal, which is physical life-saving safety. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about quote unquote problems, we have to be very clear what we mean. Mm-hmm. Is your house on fire? And do you need to get out of your house? You don't have time to think about if it's smart to jump from the third flo- store, uh, story floor. You're jumping. When those flames are looking at your back, you're jumping out of that window. Not in a million years would you ever do that as a rational human being thinking clearly as you're jumping out of a window. So it's because that fight or flight response shuts off a lot of our humanity when we're in that mindset. So when, you're, when people say, well, I, I have real things I have to do, Dr. Greg, what are you saying? I'm supposed to just focus on my breath all day? Like <laughs> I have to take care of the kids. I have to do grocery shopping. I have to pay my taxes. I have to do all these things. Like exactly why you should be doing those things with the most uh, of your brain present as possible, with your greatest capacity as a human being who has access to all these other faculties of the brain. But if you trigger the anxiety response, you're narrowing your brain's ability to use those different aspects. And you're, in fact, going to come up with a much worse, quote unquote, solution to the problem that was presented. Mm. So today in quarantine, in coronavirus times, we have to have more of our mind open and creative and thinking outside the box. People are losing their jobs. People have family who are sick. People are literally losing loved ones or or themselves are in danger of losing their life. So in this time, we need to learn how to turn off the fight or flight response because that's going to turn on much more of the brain in our capacity to actually work out these problems. Mm. It offers clarity. It offers clarity. clarity Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and here's the reason why, because at the end of the day, And this is kind of, you know, kind of full circle. But at the end of the day, even death does not need to trigger our fight or flight response. And in fact, Navy SEALs in their training go through life and death scenarios. And in fact, this is going to sound really crazy, but part of Navy SEALs training is that they actually sometimes die. And what I mean by that is that so like the hardest week of Navy SEALs training is at, is at the, uh, it's at the beach and they do training in the ocean with long, uh, submersion, submersion times in very cold water, carrying heavy weights, doing lots of crazy stuff, like really pushing the limits of, of their survival instinct. And they have a physician on staff on the beach at all times because sometimes those Navy SEALs drown in the, in the process of going through those exercises. 
And what they discover afterwards is they realize once I drowned, I realized that I don't have to be afraid of it. And once you turn off that fear response, you're actually able to stay clear headed in actually life threatening situations, which means that we can think outside the box and have a better chance of actually surviving. Holy smokes. So even for people that are trained in life-threatening situations, they're trained to turn off the anxiety fight or flight response. Now, that's a a pragmatic military version of what I'm saying is we have an even better reason to turn off our flight or flight response, which is that the father has already accounted for death. Mm -hmm. He's already conquered it. And we have nothing to be afraid of, whether it's our own impending death or somebody else's or the whole world's or anything else. We need to live in such a way that we actually connect the dots between our faith and our emotional life. Yeah. And so our own anxiety responses, our own brains can be transformed by the resurrection. In fact, I was just, I just wrote this on my board today. I was, I was going to, I was jotting down some notes for, for uh, doing a little video and I wrote, Uh, The resurrection of the body is for our bodies now. So the resurrection of the body, which we talk about, that's like theology of the body language. It's like the resurrection of the body. Like we're all going to get new bodies. That work how they're supposed to and that don't get sick. Right. But it's actually something that can affect us now. Just like the resurrection, the fullness of our redemption is something that we can enter into through union with Christ now. See, this whole thing, we connect all these dots together and we live out the best humanity possible. This is what being a saint is all about. This is what growing in our conversion is all about. It's not just a spiritual conversion, it's a human conversion. So our psychology is being transformed. What does the psychology of a saint look like? It's somebody who does not have anxiety. Because, now, there's, there's, there's the big spectrum here. So yeah, we're not I talking about illness. We're not talking about biological things we're talking about things that we're actually in control of by the way we think and whether or not we have faith and if we've overcome a fear of death because we believe in the resurrection and that faith has transformed us it's transformed our minds we put on the mind of christ yeah which is a mind that does not fear death then we don't need to let this anxiety response take control of us and we can actually learn how to overcome it wow yeah and it really is rearranging those neurological pathways of Absolutely. How we think that that Jesus enters into our very mind. You know, when we talk about him being within us, it's it's actually this practice of virtue. It's actually this discipline, like a basketball exactly. player that learns how to shoot over and over and over and over and over again. It's, it's yes. discipline of the mind that retrains how we think and how our neurons fire. Right. Oh man. Okay. I can guarantee you that I'm going to be going back and actually like listening to this episode myself several times because there's, there's so much in here and, um, and I'll be sure to, to tag, uh, your website in our show notes too. You had mentioned it earlier. So for those listeners that are wanting to kind of dive deeper into what the heck does this mean and how do I do it? Um, I'll be sure to tag that in the show notes. Uh, and I'm going to even try and talk you into coming back on this episode at, or to come back on this podcast at some point, because, 
I want to talk about how this applies to marriage and how um, couples can kind of help each other navigate some of these things. Unfortunately, we don't have time today. So uh, I figure yeah, if I you, ask you on air, I have a better yeah, chance yeah, of getting you to come. No. <laughs> no, <laughs> See I'm how I did that? You. I like to be sneaky. Nice. Um, Dr. Greg, one of the final things that I want to ask you, I always tell my guests that this is a place with more questions than answers, that we're really in this in this pursuit of truth. Um and by asking questions by wonder, uh, I think we learn more about ourselves, about the world in which we live, about our families, et cetera. And so I want to know if there is a question that you have been pondering as of late. It can be spiritual, practical, ordinary, funny, simple, silly, anything in between. But is there a question that you have been thinking about recently? Yes, uh, it's a great question. Um, first of all, let me just say in terms of marriage and, and relationships and family stuff, if people are interested, there's a whole week of that eight week uh, course that's based on like mindful communication and how to actually bring this mindfulness into marriage and how it can help actually heal a lot of the wounds that are in marriage and family. So um, I definitely recommend that for that purpose. Awesome. Um, but to get back to your question, it's, um, you know, I think um, for me, and this is kind of a deep, heavy spiritual question it's not it's not funny or light so i can't most I, of it most know. of the questions on here are more deep and spiritual so you'll be falling right in line with the tenor of many other okay, good. questions that people are wondering about on lead them to life good good um you know i've been thinking about if if this was the end of the world i i was thinking about this as a thought experiment like I, i'm not like a big like apocalypse person it's like everything's going to be the end of the world but i was thinking about how if God wanted to give humanity a chance to like really reevaluate our lives before the second coming. But in a way that was respectful of our dignity and our volition. So in other words, like people think he's going to like come down from the clouds and then like people then are going to have a chance to be like, Oh, wait a minute. I didn't mean it. Like, yeah. oops. <laughs> oh, now, I take it back. now your face. <laughs> exactly. I take it back. I think God is a little bit more respectful of our, of our freedom, but he also loves us with this infinite divine mercy. So like if he wanted to respect us, but also give us like every chance possible to he's like, please take this seriously. Like, think about it. Think about it. Think about it. We're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We'll have time for that later. He's like, okay, listen, no, everybody stop. Pull out the rug from underneath you flip the world upside down now what's important to you? Mm. So I was thinking like that, that could be a way that God might be trying to shout into the world with a megaphone. What are your priorities? What are you holding on to? What are your attachments? Because it's time to let them go because yeah. I'm coming soon. Yeah. So the yeah. question I've been thinking about for myself this is just very personal. Is like, what, what, what does God need me to actually let go of what idols have I built that have taken his place in my life and and what ways do I need conversion before he comes again? Because the world is a pretty upside down place right now. Like not again, I'm not saying I think that's what's happening, but I also wouldn't be surprised, <laughs> <laughs> but either way it comes for us one day, one day now or later, but yeah. you know, so I, I, I'm trying to take this really seriously as an invitation to deeper conversion. Yeah. And that's the question I've been asking myself. Yeah. 
Oh, and what a beautiful question it is. Listeners, I hope that that resonates in you as well. It's actually similar to some questions that I've been asking myself in regard to what are my attachments and and what do I need to reorder and reprioritize. So uh, Dr. Greg, thank you so much for giving of your time. Like I said, I can't wait to have you back on to to talk about marriage and relationships. Can you give us your website one more time? And then also I want to be sure to have people follow you on Facebook. Um, I don't know if you're on Instagram or not, but uh, you do a ton of great video resources and that kind of thing for people. So where can people find you? Yeah, anywhere people can look for me under Catholic Psych. That's P-S-Y-C-H, so Catholic Psych. Our website is catholicpsych.com. All of the resources are at catholicpsych.com slash store. Great. And I will. And there's a bunch of free stuff there as well as the courses and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. You have some really helpful blog resources uh, that people can kind of read and, and even just really practically take things right from there. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I know your courses expand on that a lot. So Dr. Greg, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. Uh, as always, you can follow us at SF Diocese or my personal account on Instagram is Emily M. Leadham. I'd love to be your uh, friend on Facebook, social media as well. And feel free to shoot us an email or send us a message with a question that you might be pondering after listening to today's episode. Uh, Thank you so much for joining friends and we will see you next time.